0: What that is? Everything. Anglophiles. Get has gone.
1: Oh my God! You people have just failed me, failed me utterly.
2: Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full bigotry. That just explains so much of my
0: childhood to me. For
2: research purposes. It's super important.
0: I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 46. I hope we just talked about this. 46 <laughs> of Angle Feeds. <Fuse. laughs> it's episode 46. We just double-checked. It's fine. Um, and we're here to talk about... Things that made us happy in our childhoods and made us the little geek nerds we are today. Yay! I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And uh, but before we get into all of that, we're going to talk about Comic-Con. Because it's all happening right now. Maya there. She was not in the Hall H line when Brian Fuller brought donuts to people in the Hall H line. <laughs> and Kaylee was like why am I not there and I said because it's really hot that there are a lot of people and you don't like heat and people I mean she's right but she didn't have to see it <laughs> yeah I did I did though <laughs>
2: <laughs> so was there anything that came out of Comic Con this year that you were legitimately 100% excited for
0: um, well I did cry happy tears of joy at the Wonder Woman trailer and the picture of the Black Panther cast.
2: Which- yeah, I loved the Wonder Woman trailer. I'm just ignoring the poster, which is a fascinating example of how they've managed to completely obscure Gal Gadot's face but perfectly light her breastplate. Mm-hmm. I I'm cautiously optimistic for the film. I am very weary about the fact that there are no women on the
0: writing cast, but Zack Snyder is. I don't get oh. Right. I mean, Wonder Woman, I mean, it does tie into things that were formative in my youth as a wee little nerd because goddamn it, I love that show. Didn't understand it, but I loved it. I mean, like, there are a lot of things that I watched when I was very little that I didn't understand, including but not limited to the Dukes of Hazzard. <laughs> like, they drove a cool car and they didn't, they climbed out through the windows. That seemed pretty awesome when you're three. So... Yeah. Uh the American Gods trailer was also posted.
1: <gasps> uh, yeah. I mean so much has
0: happened since then. I think that was Thursday.
1: <laughs> My happy place. God, yeah. thank thank the powers that be for Brian Fuller. Yeah.
2: Precious gem, Brian Fuller. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, I don't want to get too worked up over the show, but every time they announce something about that show, it excites me. Every piece of casting, and I'm not kidding. Literally every piece of that casting has been great to me. Yeah. It's like, oh my god, Ian McShane. Oh my god, Orlando Jones. And they just announced Kristen Chenoweth. Like, mm-hmm. It gets better. Jillian
1: Anderson.
2: Jillian mm-hmm. Anderson. And just in, in the roles, they're so perfect. And I know we're kind of jumping the gun there, but just that trailer is so pitch perfect in terms of the mood of mm-hmm. the book. And the book is mostly driven by mood and also the characters and what they represent. It's not a plot-heavy piece of work, so I'm interested to see how they translate that to a series.
1: It's a bit of a travelogue. Yeah. Know what I mean. yeah.
2: But there's a lot of like, hey, let's go meet this god, and then let's go meet this god, and let's go meet this god, which I really love, because I'm just fascinated by all of those people. Uh, but obviously you're going to need to add something a little meatier to make it a series, but mm. I trust a the team there. And so does Neil Gaiman, which is yeah. Uh, it's nice.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean... W- Neil said that the thing that he was most concerned about was don't whitewash the cast. And they didn't. So Oh, we're... this cast
2: is wonderful.
0: Yeah. So I think we're in a good place there.
2: And, and clearly the cast are delighted because Ricky Whittle, who plays the lead character Shadow, and Pablo Schreiber, who's playing um which what's his name? Mad Sweeney, they are already on full-term romance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which Maya pointed out, and Ricky Whittle, I believe, sent a happy emoji in response.
0: Yes, yes, and then Maya died very happy, <laughs> and then Maya, Maya also uh, called out a panel on science in media.
1: Oh, yeah, I'll link that actually oh, t- in the show Oh, link
0: the tweet, because she looks like a fucking superhero. Is the panel was all white dudes and she stood up and was like so how do you plan to or how would you combat the misrepresentation of science in media including the fact that the idea that it's all white dudes kind of like this panel and one dude was like yes that is a problem and the other ones were like well in my work they're not all white dudes and she's like uh huh she looks like a fucking superhero, and I'm so proud of her. Uh, by the way, by the way, that would be Doctor Maya because she got her PhD.
1: Woo! I just want to give quick contest that uh, Maya was a guest on one of our episodes, the one where we talked about dealing with inaccuracies on on TV and movies and in media, and she she gave the scientific point of view as as a scientist and now officially mm. Doctor Maya with the PhD. Uh, you know how she deals with when science that she's works with this necro to represented i'll link that episode too in the, in the show notes i don't remember which number it was off the top of my head
0: we're very proud of our
1: yeah i yes. think it was in the 20s i think so too yeah
0: oh uh, we haven't had a guest in a while <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you know that the justice league trailer actually looked dare i say it, good
2: okay let, 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 let's not rush ahead Let's remind the world that Warner Brothers are very good at cutting trailers. <laughs> Zack Snyder's trailer teams deserve an Oscar. Because
0: those trailers are massive. Right, and, and really Paul Feig should steal some of them.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I, I may have been blinded by the beauty of Jason Momoa, I will not lie.
0: Oh, they oh, well, are we all there. That's very easy for to get, I mean, like, look at him.
2: I mean, there were things in that trailer I really liked that weren't just Jason Momoa. I I really liked um, Ezra Miller as The Flash. Uh-huh. I think the timing on that trailer is a little off, but he's just such a fabulous twitchy ball of energy, which felt very good to that character. Ben Affleck is still doing the girly voice mm. because he's a serious actor mm. with, with serious plans, and I'm still convinced he's going to try and wrangle a coup against Zack Snyder. It's going to happen. I'm, I'm Let telling. Welcome, though. <laughs> so yeah, I'm this thing. I can't even talk about optimism or whatever when it comes to anything that DC or Zack Snyder do now, because they're not the finely tuned machine that Marvel are, for better or worse. And I don't think it's necessarily a better thing for Marvel to be finely tuned. It just means that you know it's a little more predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, credit to DC; they brought out their line of directors for their next few films including James Wan for Aquaman Patty Jenkins for Wonder Woman and the director of the Flash whose name escapes me but he directed the film Dope so I'm googling him now Rick Famuyawa Famuyiwa, sorry I'm really sorry but their director slate is already more diverse in the space of about 5 films than it took Marvel to get what 14 or 15 films in And, you know, that is something that matters. We didn't get an announcement for a Captain Marvel director.
1: We got our actress and none of us are happy. No, we got the
0: actress. Linda Holmes yelled at me. Did she?
1: Yeah, she did. Because she's
0: like, I'm so happy about this. And I'm like, she's too young. And, yeah.
1: Really? She's... I... Yeah. Okay, so the actress is Brie Larson. I'm sure everybody who listens to our podcast is Herbert Humbert. It's Brie Larson. And it's just... It's disappointed me so much. She is too young. She's 26. She's 26. Yeah, she'll be like probably 28 or whatever by the time the movie film Slash comes out. But like, my Captain Marvel is like 40.
0: Well, that's like she's an actual captain. Yeah, she's a captain. You don't get to that rank at
1: 26. Also, I and, guess I always kind of envisioned they're all with a certain gravitas that comes with age.
0: Yeah. And like all of the the fan casting that's been thrown around has been like Gwendolyn Christie or Anna Torv or Katie Sackhoff. Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. I had a truly entertaining idea of Lucy Liu last night. Which I know would would cause all sorts of shitstorms, but that'd be awesome, right?
1: Uh, Sunil had Rashida Jones Mm. and Anna Faris. Yeah,
2: (laughs) but that's thing as well in terms of if you look at the men who are in the Marvel universe, you know Chadwick Boseman joins up as Black Panther, and he was in his mid to late thirties. Yeah, there's of course Robert Downey Jr. as sort of main example. He was in his forties by the time they started doing Iron Man. Like, mm-hmm. this is not just a Marvel problem. This is a systemic issue. This but is it's one a that systemic is pretty-
0: problem. But there, there are so few roles for women once they turn 35 that this would have been perfect for so many people who are in that I'm somewhere between the ingenue and if I'm really lucky, I'll become Helen Murin.
1: Yeah. Emily Blunt with, uh, what was it called, The Edge of Tomorrow has already shown herself in that yes. military emploi. Mm-hmm. You know, that both physically she was able to get ready for the role and like have the presence. So uh, if I were them, I would have courted her for it, probably.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, she was originally going to be Black Widow and then had to drop out to do another terrible film. And then that's how they got Scarlett Johansson.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So they were, she was clearly already in the books. Like, this thing, I think Brie Larson will do a good job. She's yeah, an excellent actress. She'll
0: do fine. At, at the same just... time...
2: This is a big problem. It's not just that she's too young. It's not just that they're shutting out other more capable, older, more fitting actresses for the role. It's not just that they're continuing to establish this world where the most important thing to be in a major Hollywood film is under the age of 30. Physically, she is an extremely small, waif-like woman. And all of the women in Hollywood look like her. I was looking at a picture of her and it took me about five minutes to realize it was Alicia Vikander. Mm. That's not their fault. They're both incredible actors and I love them both. But there's an incredibly narrow pool of women that they're picking for, for an even narrower pool of roles. And they don't have the excuse of, well, we need someone who is a financial safe bet. Because no offense to Brie Larson, but no one is going to see a film because it's Brie Larson. Nope, nope. She's an Oscar winner. She could maybe do that for, like, she could headline a number of indie movies and people will see her because of that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to see a Marvel movie because it's her. They don't need that anymore.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. We're kind of in a -A post-A-list age. So they had this massive opportunity to venture outside of that comfort zone. And the fact that it wasn't taken is disheartening. Because it's obviously, it's not just Marvel. It's Alicia Vikander getting Lara Croft. It's everything to do with Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. It's, you know, anything to do with DC, I would argue, as well. Or in terms of the superheroes series in TV, our, our slate of pop culture for the next 10, 15 years is going to be superheroes. Mm. The very least you can do is try to be a little more adventurous. And you can see them getting to that. I mean, Black Panther is a perfect example of that. Like, that's something I'm legitimately excited for because it's different. Yeah. It's them actually taking a chance on something that isn't based on the same rigid formula that they've been adhering to for about a decade now. I hope that Ryan Coogler gets to make the movie he wants to make. Mm -hmm. Because I know that Ava DuVernay said she turned down directing that film because she didn't feel like she would get the freedom that she needed. I hope Ryan Coogler does. And I hope whoever gets to direct Captain Marvel gets that. And it will be a woman, because if nothing else, Marvel will want the um, pat on the back for giving
0: that job to a woman. Right, and they're certainly not going to let DC be the only one who, who has that particular note on their studio resume.
2: Yeah, and the women that they've been circling for that job... There will be some interesting names. Jennifer Kent, who directed The Babadook, I believe, was the most recent name mentioned. Mm. You know, If you're going to go to that pool of, hey, look, it's 34-year-old bearded white dudes with baseball caps who directed a $20,000 movie about the solemnity and seriousness of man. Let's give him $100 million to make a blockbuster. At least let a woman do that now and then. Like that, that Skull Island film that's coming out, the King Kong one. The guy directed that I had only directed one incredibly small budget film before, and now he's got one hundred and seventy-five million dollars to make a giant ape. Yeah, it's just—it's a very specific formula. There was a story Eva DuVernay told. She was at the Sundance Lab, which was you know where directors go to sort of hone their training and get opportunities, and she was talking to Colin Trevorrow and said, you know, I've just got the money to do this film about Martin Luther King, I've been working so hard for this, it's not a big budget, but it's a great opportunity, and he goes, hey, great, I'm doing Jurassic World. Yeah. Like, it speaks for itself, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before, and I think a big part of my theory on why studios have been making those choices with these tiny little directors is that they don't have the power or cachet to say no to the studio where someone like Ava or somebody else would go, you know what? No, I'm going to push back on this. The studio wants what they want and they don't want to fight about it.
2: Oh, I think that's the exact reason they've done it. Because when you get a director of a particular style and clout to do whatever the hell he wants, you get Zack Snyder.
0: Yeah. Look how well that's been working out for you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right let's move on to our actual happy place because honestly the captain marvel thing kind of depresses me right and we we, we planned this episode specifically as a little bit of anti-depression
0: right because our, our last couple episodes were were pretty heavy and we were depressed <laughs> and we're tired of being unhappy it's been a tough year it's been a tough year it's been it's been especially tough
1: couple
0: of weeks oh. so yeah so who wants to go first
1: I can go first okay got my stuff ready so the actual topic in case we kind of sped through it is media that influenced us in the childhood and kind of influenced our taste as, as we grew up uh, we've we've touched probably on it yeah. Uh, in a few of the past episodes, and, and this is going to be just uh, more, more more focused, and specifically on stuff that influenced me, we actually had an entire episode. Where we got to inf- to interview the author who created some of my favorite YA. So <laughs> we had that episode with Dan Dwayne about her Young Wizards, which by the way, Mark Oshiro, Mark Dustuff, is reading right now. He's reading the the series, and it's been everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. So I'm not going to go back to Young Wizards, partly because it's also this is written in English and, you know, by an American author. So it's uh, I know we have an international audience, but a lot of it is from the West. So it's very accessible. And I'm I'm more going to talk about stuff that was maybe more specific to, to Russia. One quick thing I want to touch on is. The difference between what got what I know got popular in the West and what got popular in Russia, for example, Astrid Lindgren, very prolific author of children's books, she and probably best known for creating Pippi Longstocking. In the West, but in Russia, I would say she's even more well known for creating Carlson. And I've been wondering why why the difference between what got popular in, say, the UK and the western europe and north america versus what got popular in eastern europe and russia and i think it has to do with cartoon adaptations i think it really dictated which which of her books were were more well known because russia had a series of cartoons about carlson carlson is the name of them i'll describe them a little bit so Astrid Lindgren's books they're very different from the P.P. Longstocking books. Those are probably going to be more well-known to most of our listeners. Her Carlson books are about this little man. He's almost like a spirit, but not actually drawn from any specific folklore, as far as I know. He has a propeller on his back, and he flies into this little boy's room once, and they become best friends, and like he causes a lot of mischief. It's Carlson who lives on the roof, because he lives on the roof of the building and russia had a series of cartoons and the cartoons were very well made the voice acting was spectacular had some big name actors and i and they were very iconic for i think a lot of the you know my generation and before that and i think that's how all the russian people know astrid Lindgren. where and we do know pp longstocking but not as well and when i came here i was wondering like do people even known her and it was definitely more of the pp longstocking bent but the one books I really wanted to talk about that I think would be less known to a lot of our listeners are the, the Alfred Sklarski's Tomek books. Alfred Sklarski is a Polish author. He, and I actually, I was looking him up a biography today for this episode. It turns out he was born in the States and moved back to Polish parents and moved back to Poland. In the 50s and 60s, but mainly 50s, he wrote a series of books about a young boy in book one. He's 12 years old called Tomek. The books are set at the turn of the 20th century. They're set before the Russian Revolution when Poland was part of the Russian Empire, essentially like a colonized, suppressed part of of the Russian Empire. There's a little bit of, of that political context in those books, but mainly it's about Tomek with his father and his father's friends. They travel around the world capturing animals for zoos. So they get to go, to, the first book is Australia, for example, the second book is Africa. But this is very early, 20, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, when, for example, not into, continents weren't fully explored by uh, Europeans yet. So they're still going into somewhat uncharted territories and they're having adventures. And those books were both educational in that you get to know geography and they had actually long passages about like local, local biospheres, you know, local flora and fauna and and geography, but also, like, customs of local people. But there was, you know, actual, like, adventuring in in the kind of the unexplored wilderness. They were great. Such great kids' books. I I really love them, and I reread them religiously. I actually still reread them as an adult, although it's been a few years since my last one. And I've been thinking about them more and more as, as I became an adult here in Canada because because of how those books deal with colonialism, they deal with native and indigenous people versus Western colonizers. A lot of the countries explored in those books are essentially colonized by the West. You know, if you go to Australia, New Zealand and Africa, and there was one set in, in the U.S., you are you are dealing with those issues. But you're dealing with them written by an author who's white and European, and yet the way he positions it because his characters are from a country that's under the control of another nation his his protagonist always is positioned as being sympathetic to to the oppressed indigenous peoples so those books kind of stand up even to not not everything about them but a lot of their core morals and principles they're built on i I feel really do stand up to the the mores of today. And that, that's kind of nice when you have a book that you loved as a child, and, you know, you're always going to look at it differently as an adult, but that it doesn't, it, it still has a context and, and, and principles that, that you feel that, that steered you in the right direction, you know what I mean? It's fun, you know, when you're, you're, and you you're live in the middle of Siberia, reading about capturing kangaroos is is pretty fun. And other animals. One of the, especially the early books, because they do kind of chronologically, the main character Tom, he does grow up into a young man by the end of them. But when he's still a kid in the early ones, uh, one of the motifs, one of the motifs that is often present in the story is that adults have trouble connecting because when adults from different cultures have to deal with each other, there's context, political, there's prejudice that plays into it. But little kids have an easier time finding common language. So a lot of the time when they're adventuring, they have to just kind of rely on Tomic being a kid, making friends with the other local kids, and then the adults kind of have an excuse to start talking to each other. And that's pretty great. Also, he's he's a little bit of a Mary Sue prodigy with a gun, as you do. Nice. But yeah, this is super fun. Not, not geeky, probably in terms of how we when we talk about now because you know with superhero adaptations or sci-fi and fantasy because these weren't they're more they're just kind of an adventure bent and, and, and historical bent but still they're really I, I
0: think defining geeky in terms of is it sci-fi is it fantasy that it's just too narrow with the definition of geeky who sounds funny geeky on their own you can geek about anything
1: yeah that's very true that is very true
0: God knows
1: we do, <laughs> as with almost everything these were given passed to me from my brother <laughs> These ones are very these books are, I think are very different from anything else I would term as influential on me because they're a little niche like there's not a they're not translated as widely as some of the other you know books I've read as a kid that were just universally popular. Or, like, the slightly younger generations now have Harry Potter, which everybody could connect to. Also, they don't have adaptations. As far as I know, there's no movies or uh, cartoons about them. These are just, like, strictly books.
0: Well, get on it, Russia. Stop <laughs> doing whatever it is that you're doing. You know
1: what? No, I would not trust Russia to adapt these. Because okay. The-
0: somebody somebody else do it, then.
1: Did you guys had adventure books
0: that you loved? Oh. Oh yeah. I mean there's I there's a whole like subgenre of kids books in the US that involve. well first you kill off the parents because otherwise you no know, one would get to go off on adventures cuz you know you'd have responsible parents going, "No, you really shouldn't go and do that thing. You do come home and do your homework, and eat your supper." wash behind your ears. So, I mean, you have things like the the boxcar children, which I really didn't leave. I didn't find them until I was... I didn't find them until I was really sort of after their age demographic, but they're a pack of kids who ended up as orphans and decided to live by themselves in a set of boxcars that they found out in the woods.
1: There's a whole series. Boxcars are, like, I I actually heard boxcar children, but I never did look up the term. Is it, like, train?
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, cargo train cars. Oh, yeah. and, like, they're just a big, big box with a door. Like, if you watch, oh, The Journey of Maddie Dan, which is a Disney live-action film from the mid-'80s about a girl... It, during the Depression, who her father, she only has her father, her mother is dead because, uh, you know, actual parenting would not be something you want in this story. And he gets a job logging in the Pacific Northwest and leaves her in a boarding school. And events transpire and she runs away and heads off to try and find him, and adventures ensue, and the most chase kiss with I think it's John Cusack. Uh, she acquires a wolf because, of course, she acquires a wolf. It's a great movie, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of hopping the rails, and you you know run and jump into a box car with the rest of the hobos. Good times. Well.
1: Speaking of movies and childhood adaptations, was A Wrinkle in Time, I'm thinking of the correct one, right? A Wrinkle in Time?
0: Uh, you're going to need to give me more because
1: yes, that is a book. No, no, which, which is the adaptation coming up, but I think Ava DuVernay is. Yeah, that's, yes. Wrinkle in Time.
0: that's
1: yes. A Wrinkle yeah. in Time. So was that like a formative childhood work for either one of you two?
0: Yeah,
2: so, I, me, mean, I read it when I was older, but I, th- I think it's a bigger deal in America in terms of childhood reading.
0: Yeah, I think I acquired a copy in a twelve or so. I mean, it's
2: wonderful.
0: It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's I don't, book book. I don't know if I could call it formative for me, because the whole big brain thing always really kind of freaks me out.
2: It is a really tricky book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are parts of it that I really, really like, but as a whole, and certainly the whole series as a whole, I love A Swiftly Tilting Planet, which I didn't read until I was in my late teens, because it has that whole changing history for the better concept, which is always fascinating. And yet, I, I didn't enjoy Quantum Leap as much as you think I would. <laughs> it was too, I was too young when it was out And now it's just like it's... <laughs> My uh,
1: my research into American culture of Like the 80s tells me that you must have been Influenced by either Sweet Valley or the Babysitter's Club
0: Yes and yes <laughs> <laughs> Not so much here but uh,
2: It was a There was a really bad Sweet Valley High TV show That I remember watching
0: mm.
2: Had a good feeding tune
0: yeah, The the Babysitter's Club is... Uh, it just got progressively more and more ridiculous as they kept sort of... The, the fascinating thing is the first 10 books or so, our main characters are in 7th grade, and then they move on to 8th grade, and then they're just sort of in this progressive time where they keep repeating 8th grade, and it, it's weird if you start thinking about it too much
2: is this like the how on the simpsons they've never moved beyond
1: yeah it's exactly
0: oh, it's... like that it's
2: exactly like
1: that well, it's
0: hilarious
1: my understanding is that the sweet valley high they've essentially spent 10 years in high school like they just keep on having things yeah. and homecomings and christmas dances
2: yeah, I wish they'd written that into the series. I wish it was just them as, like, 34-year-olds as, like, well, we're repeating 8th yeah. grade again.
1: Yes, and I
0: I think it might be notable that I have not read either of the where-are-they-now books that came out about the Babysitter's Club or the Sweet Valley through... Oh,
2: that was some serious nostalgia wagon caching, wasn't
0: it? Oh, it totally was. And you know what, I'm fine with that like I'm
2: fine with it it was just like i blame buzzfeed for the fact that everyone suddenly fetishizes
0: everything that came out in the 90s
1: here's fun fact I, 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 there's
0: part of part of it is buzzfeed and i think part of it is just kind of like that's the the last point you we were at that was our pre 9/11 world so it's like that that is before everything went to shit oh. <laughs> So, <laughs>
2: there is a sociological thesis waiting to be written on that. Oh,
0: definitely. And I think somebody should write it and definitely give me credit. Um, <laughs> but I, I really think that a big chunk of that is just going when was the last time the entire world wasn't at war? Certainly for Americans, we have been at, we said we weren't going to be depressing. Sorry. <laughs> But we've been at work for 15 years. It's exhausting. (laughs) And that is the, the 90s were the last point when that was true. So, of course, we kind of look back at that and go, well, you know, maybe America wasn't great, but certain things were better.
1: I don't know. I had the Chichenau conflict back then, so.
0: (laughs) Oh, that just got even darker. We were going to be happy today. Happy. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't keeping up with the Sweet Valley High books. Certainly, they were coming out like clockwork when I was in elementary school, and it got exhausting and expensive, and... The the series wasn't never complete in any of the libraries because people would steal them.
1: There is actually a way to get your Sweet Valley enjoyment. I've never read a Sweet Valley book, but there's a blog. Shannon yep. Sweet Valley blog. She summarizes very funnily, like every single Sweet Valley book ever written. She's on Sweet Valley Twins now, I think. Mm. And she's also done like the the Where Are They Now book and miniseries that followed it. Yeah. So if you're curious and you want to kind of look it up. But so I've never read a book, but I just read those summaries and just kind of imagine it
0: must have Yeah, book. this is this is like American High this is what we all thought that American high school was going to be like. Um, either Sarah or Candy did a hilarious recap slash review of Dear Sister, which is one of the Sweet Valley special books. And uh kind of one of those books that kind of got a lot of us thinking about how sex might be a thing because Chapman <laughs> touched Elizabeth Wakefield's boob. we're like, whoa, <laughs> there's got to be more than this.
2: I will say sure. I never read those books, but the formative moment for me was when I realized that those books, as well as Katie Applegate's Animorphs books, were not actually all written by the author. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was just a moment of like, hang on a
0: second. <laughs> <laughs> My entire life has been a lie. What do you mean not all of Nancy Drew was written by Carolyn Keene. <laughs> yeah, it was here. just
2: that was just one of those moments where it revealed a little bit about how the world actually works, and everything just got a little bit dimmer.
0: Yeah, we're, we're still happy. happy. Still happy. Still happy. Still <laughs> happy.
1: You know what's an interesting because of the three of us and the way we're positioned in the world. Here's something interesting I noted. Like Kaylee, really is kind of the midpoint between us because linguistically, you had. This access to the same books as Raiden, so like you have some intersection there, but culturally, Europe we had some European intersects, so like you and I will be like, Oh my god, Moomin Trolls! Yeah! And Raiden will be sitting there and be like, What is wrong with you? Two? Right. <laughs> we, I should link in the show notes that picture of Mass Mickelson with the Moomin Trolls. Oh,
2: I'll send yes, it to you, yes, I've you got should. it. Yeah.
1: European listeners of the show, if the Moomin Trolls are important to you. <laughs> tweeted us or sent comments (laughs) (laughs) because those and we had the books cartoons were everywhere i know sweden had its own cartoons obviously russia had its cartoons apparently the news i found a sweet the cartoons where mass mickelson is one of the voices is like and i think stone's card is in it too is like a and alexander yeah i think it's a re-release of the original cartoons and just like with new dubs and probably cleaned up animation
2: well, I know there was a new *Moomins* movie they made recently, and the music was by Bjork. Oh, because of course it was by Bjork.
1: <laughs> the Moomin trolls are important to me.
2: <laughs> the thing about so British kids' TV in the nineties when I grew up, it used to be on from six in the morning till about nine in the morning before going to school, obviously, um, and then you would get it from about twenty past three in the afternoon to five in the evening and they would be shown on BBC or ITV and it was specifically kids programming. They don't do that anymore here because they've got their own kids channels. There's now CBBC and CBB's which is the BBC side and then there's CITV which is ITV who make like Downton Abbey and stuff. So if you woke up early enough in the morning, what you got were all of the import cartoons. So you would get the Moomins. And you would get The Raccoons, which is a really strange Canadian cartoon that's apparently got aardvarks in it, but they look like aliens. It's hard to describe. It's very strange. It's very
0: Canadian. I'm pretty Uh, sure that aardvarks are aliens just in reality, so...
2: Yep, she gets me. Uh, So you would get all that stuff, and then there would be the specifically British-made stuff. Because they used to invest a pretty decent amount of money in kids' TV. I don't know if they do it so much now. Although there are some bright spots that you can still watch. But the ones that were very formative to me, the import cartoons were a big one, just because they were weird. Like, if you're up at, like, six in the morning and you're watching the movements, it's weird. <laughs> they're, like, they're kind of like hippos, but they're not. And then there's this guy in a pointy hat and everyone's really calm and serene, but no one has mouths.
1: And the comet is going to kill everyone.
2: Right? It's just... It seems to come out of nowhere. It's so bizarre. But it's kind of like it will lull you to sleep but give you nightmares at the same time.
1: Yeah, because the comet's going to kill the entire world. It's kind of post-apocalyptic. And I remember Pope Kate...
2: Paul had some interesting things yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah. So that was the other one. Obviously, because it's very current right now, when I was about seven or eight, they started showing Pokemon.
0: <laughs>
2: and there was just a period of time where that just ruined everyone's lives. Particularly my parents. You know, they weren't keen on that. Me and my sister were. But <laughs> bulls,
1: they had this. I'm them. playing Pokemon Go right now. <laughs> there are but, fortunately no Pokemons
0: now, in my house.
2: <laughs> but that's right, <laughs> because we're now back to the sort of weird Pokemon obsession period, I think we're being reminded of just how big a deal Pokemon was in the 90s. I mean, before Harry Potter came along and kind of swept it away for a brief period, Pokemon was everything. I mean, there's a reason I still know the theme tune by heart. And could sing it for you, but
0: I'm not going to. I've been kind of delighted of my memories of kids that I babysat for bouncing around going, Pikachu, Pikachu, Pikachu. (laughs) And now they're like in their, Jesus Christ, they're in their 20s.
1: And they're still <laughs> bouncing around going,
0: Pikachu! Pikachu. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I just want to be like, Tom, this is the thing you used to do. Are you still doing it?
2: <laughs> you can't see me right now, but I actually have an old Game Boy case that's shaped like a fluffy Pikachu. Sure.
1: So speaking of theme songs, I'm going to conduct an experiment. And if it falls flat, I'm just going to cut it out of the final edit. <laughs> oh,
0: no, no, no. You have to leave it in no matter what. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Ready? Okay. DuckTales.
2: Don't, don't, damn it. It's in there now.
0: (laughs) I knew that's where you were going. I I had a science teacher in 8th grade, which was like the heyday of the Disney afternoon cartoon thing. And there were like, he did that in science class once. It was like oh my god, I have power. (laughs) Then he did it during an assembly. <laughs> and the principal was like, what the fuck just happened?
1: I can remote control the kids.
0: <laughs> He's like, you want me to get them to shut up? Ducktales! And everybody. I have a But well,
2: that's an interesting thing to note as well, is in, particularly for me in the 90s, like Disney were at their prime <sighs> in TV and film. So this is the era of the Disney renaissance, so they're making money hand over fist, and they're actually investing it in kids' TV. Uh, And this is pre, you know, Hannah Montana, Sweet Life, that one with Selena Gomez. Like, pre-kind of package deal, but it's post, like, Britney, Justin, Mickey Mouse Club era. Mm -hmm. So animation is really dominating.
0: Yeah, this was back when the Disney Channel was a premium channel, but they had their DuckTales and chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers and Darkwing Duck. Chip, 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 Chip
1: and Dale. Rescue Rangers. My mother just calls chipmunks Chip and Dale in Russian or English. She doesn't remember, like, if she can't remember the word of this, she'll go, look, Chip and Dale.
0: Like the strippers? Yeah, I,
1: I don't have the heart to tell her.
0: No, don't Don't tell her that. Don't tell her that. <laughs> But those were on broadcast TV. Wanna say UPN, Channel 9, whatever it was. Yeah, Yeah. we
2: actually, when we first got satellite TV, my family, if you um, could get a decent signal, you could get the Disney Channel. So Mm -hmm. you got all that stuff. But a lot of that was also repeated on either ATV or BBC, like the kids' channels I mentioned earlier. So those were very formative in that aspect. Because There's a lot of American entertainment in Britain. A lot of the import, particularly for kids stuff. And then, of course, you have the era where um, anime becomes much more readily available. So you get Pokemon. I I never never got Sailor Moon, but a lot of people I grew up with did. Mm -hmm. But this was stuff that was no longer just sort of a strange thing you heard about. It was something you could actually watch. Albeit, oddly edited and dubbed to kind of cut out all of the weird adult stuff. And all of the Japanese stuff.
1: Cousins, totally cousins and conclusion cousins. No gay people anywhere. And that one's it's totally like, no a girl. Wells. <laughs> <laughs> God, Sailor Salem cut for American TV.
2: So we also got um, there there was actually money put into British programming for kids. So Like, I found a bunch of them on YouTube, which was a very strange evening. Um, (laughs) So there were two shows that were hugely formative to me as a kid. One was called Maid Marianne and Her Merry Men, which I think I've talked about on this show before. Um, It was written by Tony Robinson, who you may know as Baldrick from the Blackadder shows, and also the presenter of Time Team. And it was basically a kid's version of Blackadder, but it was set in Sherwood Forest... And the Merry Men were led by Maid Marian, but Robin Hood got all the credit, but he was too busy um, priming his hair to really notice. So this is actually a show that holds up really well. It does open with a funky fresh rap because it's the 90s, <laughs> well, it's late, early, early 90s. It's like People have just discovered who the Beastie Boys are, so they think that all white people can rap.
0: <laughs>
2: but it is also one of those shows that you get so many more jokes when you're slightly older. you do when you're younger Uh, but a lot of it was just like bizarre references to current events but also um, a lot of puns because you know everyone loves puns i feel like we're coming back to the era of puns actually
0: yes kevin's very happy i think we're coming back to the era
2: of fart jokes as well because the bfg came out and i haven't seen it yet but apparently it has some of the best farting corgi jokes in history
0: oh um okay that, you know, I'll that movie stands for big fucking giant, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it does now.
2: So that was one that was big for me. It was also very formative because it, one, it had a woman in the leading role. Two, it had a woman who was funny and actually got to be in on the joke and wasn't just the scold. Because mm-hmm. even today, like to tie it back to our earlier discussion of Comic Con, Zoe Zaldana was talking about. Gamora and Guardians of the Galaxy, and she made this comment about how, you know, her character is the one that sits on the sidelines shaking her head and going, "No, no, don't do that," and it was just like, that's really depressing. Yeah, like we've you know, justice for Gamora. We've talked about that before, but yeah. it's still so common to see the woman as the straight person, as the scold, as the shrew, as the person who's trying to stop everyone from having fun. So getting to see the woman actually having fun. And leading the fun and being in on it is, is a big deal. This is one of the things that's so good about the most recent Ghostbusters film. It's full of women being weird and funny.
0: Right. And don't don't talk about Ghostbusters because I'm going to talk about Ghostbusters. Okay. I'll, get, I'll
2: let you get to that. But yeah, just there's a reason that it matters to constantly pierce those kind of tropes. Because I'm still talking about Maiden Marion you know, 20-something years later.
1: Mm-hmm. But here's the point you bring up. If you think about it, because I'm sitting here thinking about it as we're talking, don't you feel like as kids we had more of those girls getting to go on adventure, like, you know, girl, female protagonists? But as children we got to have them, where now as adults we don't. Because I can think of, for example, in Russia, my generation, and like before and after, we had Alisa, which that was sci-fi, and this is the Russian version name for for Alice and the girl from the 21st century, it envisioned the 21st century as this kind of futuristic place where the earth was bound in friendship and we didn't need money anymore. And you could instantly travel around the globe. So you could go treasure hunting in the Brazilian rainforest, even if you were Russian, but also space travel was a thing now. And her, like she got to have space adventures and there was like a whole long series of books. And also, Cartoons and movies, <laughs> very, important. very uh, actually a really huge movie from I think like the 70s that was kind of iconic for a lot of um, Russian kids of like my brother's generation and then even mine. So we got to have that you know the girl adventurer running around having adventures, and like you said, you had like Maid Marian, but in you know, The Wrinkle in Time has a female protagonist. So there's like, it seems to be that when it comes to kids' books, girls often do get to have books where, like, because they, what are they going to be? Like, kids' books aren't probably not going to be like romances that often, right? Like, they'll tend to be adventures. Like, most kids' books are adventures in some way. Pippi Longstocking is another good example, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll have... And I think you could mind, if you mind, the, at least the Western kind of ethos of children's literature or TV or movies, you'll find a lot of girls having adventures as well as boys.
2: I think it's a bit of both, because there's still a tendency to reduce stories for girls of that age to princess stories.
1: Do you blame Disney for that? Like, is it? No. I
2: think Disney are the driving force, certainly yeah Uh, because it's an easy thing to make sell and commodify Mm -hmm. which is incredibly soulless but like that that's why they do it they do it to make money Mm -hmm. and you're seeing that now with uh, the way that disney are you know delving back into their back catalog and making live action versions of everything which isn't a bad thing the recent jungle book movie is really good it Mm -hmm. hit. All my nostalgia buttons, and mm-hmm. I will go see Beauty and the Beast because I slaver like a dog over anything to do with Beauty and the Beast. Word, but I've, those films like that and the Cinderella and stuff aren't made for kids. I think it's made for us They mm-hmm. get a it, G rating because obviously you make more money when you bring more people to see it. But the yeah. driving force there are women who own, you know, the HD or you know, Blu-ray of Beauty and the Beast and go to sing-alongs and. Have probably cosplayed as Belle at some point in their life, because
1: mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. that's where the money is right now. We, you know, the Buzzfeed joke earlier, but nostalgia wagon is teeming right now. It's why Star Wars is doing so well right now. Although they're actually putting effort into making Star Wars a story for a new generation, like Rey as a character is a very powerful thing to have. Same with Finn.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think it's a bit of both. I think because it tends to be these bigger companies that make these properties they like to fall back on what they believe is safe but it's now, they no longer have an excuse to ignore the obvious which is that things that little girls like and little kids who aren't white like, make money so even if they do it for the sole reason, this whole soulless and miserable capitalist reason that it makes money you know, it does have a role on effect for everyone else in a cultural way so that doesn't matter. I'd love to see more adventurous stories. I'd love to see more good romance, like a romantic kind of things and princessy stuff that doesn't rely on the same tropes for kids. Because I don't think there's anything wrong with telling you know, like, with playing princess dress up. I think there's a bit of, been a bit of a pushback lately, but like, it's not a bad thing to do. It's just bad when it's the only thing that girls are given.
0: Because mm-hmm.
2: the princess thing, like, I love all those movies, but I never had an interest in being a princess. I love Beauty and the Beast, because she had a library.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I still want that library. Uh-huh. Huh. All right, boys, you know how to get to my heart? Give me a book. Room. Oh, yeah. room full of books. Holy fuck. A book full of rooms is actually pretty good, too.
2: <laughs> like, don't lock us in the castle with the book room, but, like, just give us the book room.
0: Just give us a book room.
1: Just make the whole castle a book room. Like, a castle of books, I'll take. Yeah.
0: I, I dropped a, an obscene amount of money at Ikea yesterday because my roommates moved out and I have, like, nothing. And I need more bookshelves because the one, two, six that I have, seven. seven that I have are not enough. But we couldn't get the bookshelves because they wouldn't fit my much more.
1: This is why I will accept, you know, $1,000 in Amazon Kindle gift cards as opposed to a castle full of books. <laughs> It'll work just as well. Really? But I prefer my research books on paper. I don't actually remember last time I bought a paper book. I'm all about the instant gratification of I want this now. Mm. Can't resist.
0: Right. Okay. So I want to talk about Ghostbusters. Okay. I love the 1984 movie. I almost wore out our VHS tape of it that my dad taped off of like a free HBO weekend. Back in the battle days when we had cable. But it never occurred to me that girls could be Ghostbusters. Because it just didn't. And I saw this year's Ghostbusters on you know, preview night, Thursday night, in a theater full of women. And I laughed so hard I almost peed. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> and I was just so happy that. No one, no other girl gets to or has to live in a world where it will not occur to her that girls can't be Ghostbusters.
2: I will say the thing so. that
0: just completely <laughs> so touching. Out, I know, right?
2: <laughs> the thing that totally warmed my heart, and I saw it shared from Tumblr, it was on Twitter was a picture of the costumes you could buy for women Ghostbusters before the new film came out, which were all sexy Ghostbusters costumes, Mm -hmm. and the ones you could buy after the film came out, which was little girls dressed like Kate McKinnon. Yes.
0: I mean, like, Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig are great, but Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon are absolute revelations. Oh, yeah. And please, Hollywood, give them so many roles, so I get to see them all the time. I don't want to get sucked back into Saturday Night Live. Please don't make me. Please. Please don't make me.
2: You should watch, I think you'll have seen it, but our our listeners should watch when Kate McKinnon co-hosted the Independent Spirit Awards. Mm-hmm. And she did a sketch where she played Kate Blanchett's character in Carol.
0: Oh, nice. As
2: the world's least subtle lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah she is glorious i'm so glad that people are aware of her and for leslie jones as well who for me had the line of the film where she walks past the the in the um concert hall full of mannequins and goes room full of nightmares not going in there
0: (laughs) no (laughs) smartest person in the bunch (laughs) (laughs) i turned to the the woman sitting next to me in the theater after the movie was over and if you haven't seen it yet stay through all the credits Every single last one. Because not only will you get Chris Hemsworth's best moment in the movie, which I think they clearly filmed and went, this doesn't actually work plot-wise, but we need to keep it. (laughs) But I turned to the woman sitting next to me and was like, it was a delight sitting next to you because of how hard you were laughing. And she's like, that was great. That was perfect. It was nostalgia. And also it was perfect. (laughs) Generally, the uh, plan of going to see movies because MRAs are mad has been working out pretty well for us. So, <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I've been a big fan of this.
0: Yeah.
2: I also, I can't remember who said it on Twitter, so shout out to them, Anyone can remember who it is. Um, after a whole generation of growing up having to play, of girls having to be the April O'Neil to the boys' Ghostbusters in the playground, all the boys yeah. have to be Kevin now.
0: Yeah. And all the girls yeah. get to be Ghostbusters. yeah. There, there's a great essay where the, the author is talking about how when she was seven and she had to play April O'Neil off in the sidelines, usually captured, or uh, Janine, the receptionist from the 84 Ghostbusters, off in the sidelines, often captured, delivering messages and not actually doing anything active. She felt her seven-year-old self watching the movie and just being transfixed this thing that was important to me as a kid is now important to me, both as a kid and as an adult in new and fascinating and very happy ways. So
1: how were the cameos? Cause I know Dan Aykroyd I believe has one. and um, The
0: three
2: remaining uh, Living Ghostbusters all have cameos. My The one that made me smile the hardest was when you see Ernie Hudson.
0: Yep. Just for the role he's in. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, and
2: I see Sigourney Weaver as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah,
0: everybody had a cameo except Rick Moranis, who has retired from acting. He retired in in the mid-90s after his wife died. And they asked if he would like to come back, and he declined. But there's also a bust of Harold Ramis, and also his son is in one of the crowd scenes. oh. Some cameos got a laugh. Some got a polite chuckle. Two of them got applause in my theater.
2: <laughs> For me, the, the, the great visual gag of the film is they're in the office of Melissa McCarthy's boss at the beginning of the film, who's running this kind of rundown college. And on the back shelf, he's got a copy of Aragon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a pitch-perfect moment. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I actually could have watched an entire film of Melissa McCarthy complaining about her wontons to soup.
0: (laughs) I just want a reasonable ratio of wontons to soup. (laughs) And safety lights are for dudes.
2: Oh, I love that. (laughs) So yeah, go see Ghostbusters even if you're going to see it for the sheer reason that it will piss off MRAs, which is a great great
0: reason to do lots of things.
2: I think it was mostly nostalgia done right. Yeah. Like, I feel like there were some moments where they were kind of following the motions because they felt they had to. Mm. Like, when the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man turns up, it was like, I get it. But overall, I, I can't wait to see the sequel to that. Yeah. Because they've established a world, they've done everything they need to do, and now they can just have Kate McKinnon being bonkers.
0: Completely bonkers. And licking whatever she wants. Yes.
1: This will be a lot of people's sexual awakening.
0: Like, Katie Kinnon ruined me for men.tumblr.com.
2: <laughs> it is really wonderful. But we're in that kind of strange place right now where our nostalgia, particularly for people aged between, I would say, about 25 to 45, their particular brand of nostalgia is being pandered too heavily.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Like, as we said, Ghostbusters gets to be revived for a new generation in a new way by doing something as simple as a gender swap, which, let's be honest, it's as radical as Hollywood gets. Then you'll have something like what Disney are doing with um, you know, Cinderella and The Jungle Book and I imagine with Sleepy- with a Beauty and the Beast, which is pretty simple kind of retread of what they've done before, but in a live action format. Mm-hmm. Something that looks pretty. Something where people get to wear really pretty dresses. Like, I mean, anything that keeps Sandy Powell in work, I'm I'm delighted by. So interesting how much of this... And then I I don't even need to say everything with Star Wars. Like, yeah, I'm sure there's artistic merit behind making all those films, but it's also because it's going to make a lot of money.
0: Yeah.
2: Like, don't get me wrong. I will be there to see Rogue One. Like, I am there for Felicity Jones as badass space pirate and i am there for mass mickelson as space oppenheimer mm-hmm. as i've said many times Or even something like you know the han solo movie that's coming out that i'm reasonably intrigued by
0: having recently rewatched hail caesar <laughs>
2: yes i'm i'm
0: there for it i'm there for it
2: someone pointed out on oh no they didn't that alden ehrenreich who's playing han solo looks like a an absolute 50 50 split of Sebastian Stan and Rami Malek.
0: Yes, it's true. It's totally yeah. true.
2: If you haven't seen Pale Caesar, which is it's not the Coen Brothers best, but every scene Alden Ehrenreich is in is perfect.
0: Yeah.
2: He is like Chris Hemsworth in Ghostbusters levels of stupid. He yes. is Tom from Love and Friendship I don't... level yeah. stupid. I...
1: I was thinking about Tom from Love and Friendship. Like, you know, it takes real comedic skill to play that. Like, yeah, okay. the actor playing Tom in Love and Friendship, you know, he'll have his line that where, he, you know, obviously that's not the kind of movie where you ad-lib because of the language and the context. So he'll have his line and everybody knows another line is standing. But he gets to choose how long the uncomfortable pause is. Mm-hmm. And he had enough skill to make it like really uncomfortable, and all the other actors standing around, their characters having to be like that. It takes, it takes comedy takes skill,
2: yes. Well, that's one of the reasons I really liked Alden Ehrenreich and *Hail Caesar*, is he had the smart to play that character not as maliciously stupid. No, he's clearly the sweetest guy you'll ever meet, but he's as thick as two short planks. And I want an entire film. About him and the uh, the Carmen Miranda actress Yes. that he goes on a date with.
0: <laughs> I want there there there's like twenty movies out of that movie that I want to see. Yes, I I want to see more about ScarJo and her fish ass and her <laughs> her wedding with Jonah Hill. Jonathan. The entire
2: Loretta Young setup there with the pregnancy yeah like i want a whole film of that i want like a multi-novel romance universe series just about everyone in that film
0: yeah
2: (laughs) like i want a novel i want a book about the communists oh my god janet tate with his dog as gene kelly is just like even if nothing in that movie really hangs together it's a series of amazing gifts (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this. It's going to be a great way to describe things. A series of amazing gifts.
0: Yeah. <sighs>
2: well, um Buzzfeed's um Alison Wilmore, who's their chief film critic, she described the Jennifer Lawrence film Joy as a series of Jennifer Lawrence gifts in search of a movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's about right.
1: It's it's just so evocative because you kind of know exactly what it what that means.
2: Yeah. Welcome to the new age. <laughs> okay, so I actually have a thi- a couple things to touch on in terms of big formative influences.
0: Okay.
2: So stuff like the TV stuff was mostly me and my sister just sitting in front of the TV and watching things. Because we were kids and we were bored and that's what you're supposed to do. But there are things where my parents took a more active step. And this was more when we got to about 9, 10, 11... And clearly my parents, who had absolutely no understanding of what was suitable for kids and what wasn't, or they did and they just didn't care, I don't quite know. <laughs> uh, but there's an age where my parents started to kind of let more movies and TV shows and stuff into our lives. And there were two main examples of this that have really stuck with me. Uh, the first one is the Billy Wilder film, Some Like It Hot, mm-hmm. which is Jack Lemon and Marilyn Monroe and Tony Curtis. Mm-hmm. one of the best comedies ever made basically set during Prohibition era and Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are two broke musicians who accidentally witness a gangland murder and in order to go in hiding from the mob they dress up as women and you go touring with an all women jazz band and it is so stupid and incredibly smart at the same time and I remember coming home from school one day Um, And my mum was not working that day and came in And the film was about halfway done They were already in drag and on tour with a band And I remember coming home and thinking Oh, it's some old, boring, old person movie in black and white Mm -hmm. This is not for me Why do I have to watch this? Mum, why are you making me watch this? Why? And my mum was like, you know, shut up This is one of my favourite films, you're going to watch it (laughs) And I remember laughing so incredibly hard at it just one of those weird moments where it's like oh, old people's things can be good too.
1: Aw, <laughs> that movie <laughs> has <laughs> that movie has two things: the most sexual dress Marilyn Monroe's ever worn, and the most perfect ending line slash moment oh, ever.
0: Yeah.
2: It is very much a film of its time, but there are one liners in it that are timeless. Uh, there's the moment where Jack Lemmon goes on a date with this incredibly clueless millionaire, and they do tango dancing <laughs> and it's so funny um, yeah, if you haven't seen it watch it it, it really holds up um, but that was just a really cool one for being introduced to for, for my mum but the other one that my mum had a very driving force and as did my grandmother this is like from generation to generation is the film Stand By Me
0: <laughs>
2: from 1985 I believe And it's based on the Stephen King short story, The Body. And it's about four kids in the 50s who go looking for a dead body. One of their um, classmates has gone missing and they know where the body is, so they go to look for him. And it was just another one of just like, basically anything older than like the year it came out was too old for me as a child. So these are like the two things kind of breaking down the barriers there. And this was the first one that just hit me on a purely emotional level. And it's an incredibly funny film, and it's full of all of these jokes that I did not get at the time. Did you use your right hand or your left for that, you know? (laughs)
0: Um,
2: But just the sheer power of four kids who were about the same age as me. They were a little older, but so much focus on their friendship and the particular kind of friendship you have at those ages, and the way that you talk to one another, where you're so vulgar because you think that's how adults talk. And you're trying so hard to be tough, and nothing, you know, and invincible and nothing will touch you and you realise actually you're kind of breaking up inside because it is incredibly difficult to be a kid sometimes.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And then they play that song at the end and there's tears and then it got even sadder when you found out that one of the guys that was in it died really young and then you find out that the fat kid is now in Scream 2 and he's really not, you know, he's really buff looking now. It was just, it was such a strange moment to realise that that film that I was watching was not made the year that I was, you know, living in. So the people who were in that film were older now and doing other things and they weren't those characters. And I I know that sounds really stupid, but for someone who grew up primarily watching animated films, I knew animated films weren't real life because it didn't look like real life. But live action was a different story. And that film, those two films are still two of my all time favorite films. I will watch them whenever they're on TV. I could sit and watch them repeatedly and never get sick of them. I remember when one of my friends, one of my best friends had never seen Stand By Me and when he finally watched it and I was just like, sort of angry at him that he had never seen it before. <laughs> was, how have you not seen this before? Just like, how did you not have a childhood identical to mine where your mother made you watch this? But then they started. of joy of realizing, hey, you get to watch this for the first time and you get to experience how incredible it is.
0: Right? Yeah.
2: Like that film still makes me cry quite heavily, actually for a film that has so many dick jokes it's very sad and you should all watch it if you haven't seen it actually in terms of films the thing that had the biggest impact on me wasn't even a film it was a film magazine Mm -hmm. um empire magazine is a monthly you know film review and uh and stuff magazine that's been coming out here it's 20, Thirty years, I think,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I remember buying an issue of it when I was fourteen because Van Helsing was on the cover, yeah. <laughs> and because obviously that that is the one that stuck around for me. But it was one of those things where I read it in between classes because nobody wanted to have lunch with me,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it was how I started going to see films outside of blockbusters. Because they would have reviews of art house films and foreign language films and all the films that were heavily Oscar buzzed, which I didn't really understand as a concept. And I decided, well, it's showing and I only have to pay like £3.50 to see it. Why don't I go see it on Saturday on my own with my pocket money? So that was how I ended up seeing things like Brokeback Mountain and Finding Neverland because it got five stars in Empire. And I really, it got five stars. It must have been good. And it is very good. I remember taking my sister to see that and we were both crying mm. and I saw House of Flying Daggers. I saw, I think I saw David Lynch. I saw Guillermo del Toro. I saw just all of these films that were, I were told we going to get Oscar nominated. So I had to go see them and that kind of kickstarted the particular kind of fascination I have with film, not just as an entertainment medium, but as something with real cultural clout Like, you know, why did this film get Oscar nominations and this one didn't? Why was I told that this one was going to get them and then it didn't and this one came in nowhere? What does that mean? So I'm fascinated by the the politics and the ideas behind that and I think it was really Empire Magazine that kickstarted that for me Mm because it was how I discovered what these movies were in the first place and the way people talked about them. And then that led me to hanging around on the IMDB message boards which is, I don't necessarily recommend it. (laughs) no. I discovered what trolling was mm. it's never nice so the reason, there's many reasons I love films but yeah. it's a combination of the, the influences of my family and the influences of that particular magazine that have kind of shaped me in a very formative way
1: mm-hmm. you know film is kind of an interesting one for me because pre the pre perestroika, so back when the you, you know Russia was still USSR. The film industry was actually very robust because when the state funds everything, well you ha- you can make your movies. Like if the state if you censors approve or you if you sneak things past them, your like budget is essentially not not an issue. So cinema was very robust in, in the Soviet Union and, and I love a lot of these older movies. There are very few Russian movies from the 90s onwards that that I like or that I thought were good quality, but like any movie made before the late 80s, I I'm would a big fan of, and there's several I rewatch, and the one particular one, and I don't know if we have any other Russian listeners, but they'll know, The Garage. It's one of those that takes the central motif of almost kind of like Hell is Other People. Essentially, if you have a group of people and they're locked in a room together overnight, and society breaks down. <laughs> you know, they start losing their sanity or semblance of, of civility and politeness and just kind of turn on each other over a spot to park their car. But it's a comedy. It's it's by one of the Soviet Union's kind of biggest names, directors. And uh, th- and the script is really funny. And it's so quotable. It's, I think that's what grabs me about movies is if I can quote it. And some movies I just know by heart. So th- this movie has just so many quotable lines. Would probably be a good thing to show anybody who kind of wanted to know what life in the USSR was like. (laughs) Because it kind of touches on absurd bureaucracies and like mandated things about life in societies. I don't know, it's just, it's great.
2: (laughs) There was a really fascinating week on the AV Club about three months ago called Cold War Week, Mm -hmm. which was more about kind of the relationship between America and the USSR from the American point of view of pop culture. But they do touch on some of the, the Soviet stuff, primarily because their head writer is Ignaty Vishnevetsky, who is Russian, and I think he just wanted to get paid to talk
1: about his childhood. <laughs> yes, sir. I read, I think, one of those articles, and I was like, yep, yep.
2: <laughs> but there's a wonderful video they do where it's um, he's clearly got hold of some Soviet-era soft drinks and such, and he's just standing on the sidelines while all of these Americans try them, and they have to figure out what flavors they are. <laughs> and they they drink a can of, I think it's Soviet-era Pepsi. (laughs) It's like, no one's drinking 35-year-old cans of Pepsi. (laughs) No. But it's just clear like Russian glee that he's getting to do this for a living, which is amazing because he's a wonderful writer, but it was very informative and I just enjoyed sending things to Alina and her responding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That sounds about right. Ah, Beautiful cultural milestones. (laughs)
1: Mm. It's it's funny. I remember tweeting at you guys. What was it? A couple of days ago, I was rewatching Save the Last Dance, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, thinking like, well, when I was actually sixteen you know, in the year two thousand, I wouldn't have thought our style was anything very specific or distinct. But now you watch movies from then, and you're like, wow, that is a very specific look.
2: Oh yeah. yeah. What was it? I watched recently, and it was from two thousand and one, and it looked so two thousands. <laughs> No, uh, my other podcast, Bloodsucking Feminist where Our next episode, which is coming up Is on Dracula 2000 Oh god <laughs> Which is the, the Dracula movie where Dracula is played by Jared Butler and he's also Judas Iscariot And he's also possibly the Antichrist And you can tell that it was shot in 2000 Because all of the music is new metal <laughs> So it's Limp Bizkit And Creed And Corn and Pantera And things like that And it's like, oh, this is the most 2000s film ever
1: Jerry Ryan's in it. That's all I yeah, remember.
2: we talked about that. Oh, I've seen that movie so many times and it never gets any better. It actually gets worse. <laughs> sure. Aww, i seen it so many times. How do you mitigate the problematic element of having Judas Iscariot be the Antichrist and all the anti-Semitism attached? Cast the whitest man on the planet. <laughs> Scotland. We can produce a lot of white men. Okay, here's a question. Since we touched on the um, the Soviet us element did you ever what was the sort of cultural point in terms of watching those things as kids and seeing how your culture was portrayed and how other people's cultures were portrayed because the main outsider view of scotland i had growing up was groundskeeper (laughs) willie and like even as a kid i knew that there was something kind of fundamentally wrong there
1: what us tv tended to do is it had a view of russia that was like at least two two or three decades out of date does anybody remember the Val Kilmer movie, The Saint?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: No. Like, do you remember they are in a club and for some reason listening to, like, Roma people playing folk music? That's not, and they filmed in Russia, so there were actual Russian clubs they could have gone to. And they actually, I remember listening to director commentary, and he said, like, yeah, our Russian team was like, you, you guys know this isn't, like, what's yeah, actually,
0: right, it, right? I, I... You brought this up when we had Maya on talking about, and I mean it's been billion years roughly since I've seen that movie,
1: so 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 there's that, and I don't know. I remember episodes of like Highlander or even Alias. That's a more recent one where yeah, she'd go to Russia and suddenly it's the nineteen fifties. (laughs) Right. But on the flip side, the the impression I had of America was nothing like what. The U.S. turned out like after I moved to Canada and then I had more access to actual, actual American culture, like I guess because religion wasn't part of our life in the USSR so much. I mean, it's a lot. It's had a resurgence since. But I always imagined the West to be a lot more of a secular place than it is. Like I never thought of the us oh,
0: God.
1: as a religious place. I just it never occurred to me that places like that still existed. You know, It's going to sound weird, but yes, it never occurred to me. That religion still played a role anywhere. I, I thought of it as a relic of the Middle Ages.
2: No, I get that. And, like British yeah. entertainment tends to be pretty secular.
1: Right. So, I never would have thought of the U.S. as, say, a sexually repressed place. Uh huh. It just seemed like the place where everything, I guess, really modern comes out of. And yeah, yeah. So it it was. So even though Russia's portrayed. You know, very out of date by the US media, but what the, the opinions are formed about the states weren't anywhere near with the reality either.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right.
2: I <laughs> think, particularly, children's entertainment tends to deal in relative broadness. Mm-hmm. So that's how you get a groundskeeper, Willie, because that accent is funny. And it's funny to talk about kilts and bagpipes okay. and call the French people cheese eating surrender monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, the thing is, that show is not made for a Scottish audience, specifically. You don't make a show for five million people, you know? <laughs> it's the same thing with Outlander. Outlander's not made for Scottish people, and that's fine. You shouldn't make things for us. We suck. We've got our own things. So it, but when you see the particular set of tropes and ideas and assumptions played time and time again, it can be really strange. And exhausting. And I feel like this is probably worse for America because America is much bigger than Scotland. And there are more people and there are more regions and variations and ideas and such. And it's always reduced to that one guy in The Simpsons with the hat and the, the guns that goes yee mm-hmm. I mean, I always imagined America as just being full of like sex obsessed jocks and cheerleaders because that's all we saw on American TV.
0: Right. This is going to sound convoluted. But you're just gonna have to this is gonna be one of those things where i i just sort of talk my way through something that i haven't really thought about like honestly we don't worry too much about what the rest of the world thinks about us because we don't care (laughs) as americans we're so egocentric and quite frankly isolationist because we're so big and we're so far away from most of the rest of the world. I mean, yes, there's Canada and there's Mexico. And so there's socialism on the top and God knows what the fuck is going on down (laughs) below. I was just saying, tread
2: tread carefully there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of Europe, it's so far away and so many people just can't afford or have, and or have no interest in going there than worrying about what, what everybody else thinks. I mean, we're the best. That's all we need to know. We're good. What we have more of is conflicts between what people in different parts of the country think. Because again, we're so big. And the culture on the East Coast is completely different from the culture on the West Coast And both of those things are very completely different from the various cultures that you find somewhere in the middle of the country. And greater communication through the internet. I think the internet has changed that a lot. But there's still the whole, like, what's the real America? Is it Iowa? Is it New York? Is it Virginia? What's the real America? And that has led to less happy things so just seeing like if you watch so much of our tv and movies it's set in new york and la Mm -hmm. and there is so much more than that but it's not all black and white depressing tragic comedy like nebraska for example
2: But so much of the shows that are set in LA and New York treat everything in between as, you know, going back home is the worst thing ever. Right. It's like, oh no, don't send me back to Ohio or something like that. Connecticut. Connecticut! (laughs) Connecticut.
0: I can't go back to Connecticut. Susan, don't. I I have had conversations with people when I first moved here that were like, well, you don't know what it's like to live in a big city. And I'm like, no, Minneapolis-St. Paul is an actual city, right? I didn't grow up in a farm town writing how to school. Like, it was an actual... I didn't. I know, I'm sorry. Did I, like...
1: Did yeah. you know the the place where I'm from in Russia is actually... Literally the slang for being from the province. <laughs> There's a movie out there which, like, if you if you if you uh, demonstrate a provincial attitude, like you're from the Urals. Also, apparently, we have a very specific slang slash like accent slash dialect that Re- other Russians can recognize. Yeah. Which you know, fuck off, because Moscow has the weirdest accent ever, and you can immediately tell when somebody's from there. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's kind of
0: like. <laughs> what does the rest of the world think about America who cares
1: so have a bit of a fun uh, roundtable us. maybe we can come up with something funny for this as far as childhood formative influences there is uh, a running joke slash you know but kind of truth to it that David Bowie in the labyrinth has been many young girls sexual awakening and probably young boys mm-hmm. Many young persons who is interested in David Bowie's sexual awakening There's been rumors of a remake slash reboot floating around nope. forever. They've been deep nope. and Nope. nope. nope.
0: And Bunker. Nope.
1: I I my roundtable question is this. If it were to come true, nope. who would play Jared? Who would no be the next generations? No Did one. you hear
2: the um those um the guy from the rap claimed that he had been told from sources many, many months ago that if the remake were to happen, their first choice was Alexander Skarsgård.
0: No.
1: Not right! I'm not saying no. he's not like hot or, not or anything, just not the right kind of... N- not right. No, I
2: mean, I I would write that fanfiction with him in it myself if I had to. Um, I think you need someone a little more idiosyncratic. Like, that's the thing about Bowie. Is a was a very, very sexual person, but mm-hmm. not in the way that we tend to define sex symbols.
1: And also not threatening to twelve year old girls.
0: No. Yeah. That's
1: why he was our sexual awakening.
0: <laughs> no, you need somebody and I mean like quite frankly, this person doesn't exist anymore. This was just like the Now oh. oh, I'm really angry. <laughs> um
2: thanks. Not, I do not think they will remake it anytime soon. No, I
0: think they've officially if only because
2: no. the memory of Bowie is too fresh.
0: Yeah. You need somebody with a dangerous edge but only just. Mm-hmm. Mass Mickelson? Uh-uh.
2: Once again, I will also write that fan fiction if need be. <laughs> but yeah, like, that, that's a tough piece of
0: casting.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna Google. Uh, what music universe? would, like, I don't think you if say if they were a it. I don't think they should do it with the same music. I think if the music was iconic, but I think it's just for that. I think if you wanted music to still be part of it, you would have to choose a performer or a genre or a style, and have that set the tone
0: mm-hmm.
1: for a remake. And I wonder what music would be. I'm not saying they'd also have to do the same thing where, well, we're gonna cast a musician and then that musician's music is gonna be in it. That wouldn't. That wouldn't. Might limit them in a way that makes it impossible to do. Sometime but the thing that. about
2: the the music of the original film is well the only film that hasn't been remade it's very 80s. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like a lot of those songs on that album were there because he couldn't get them onto the young Americans album. They do feel like they're good songs but they do feel like B-side kind of songs. If it was going to be remade the, the the worry is that you would end up making it too zeitgeisty like it'd be too of the moment and it wouldn't age as well and like i think you can get away with 80s sound i don't know if you can get away whatever our current sound is what is our current sound right now
0: oh
2: like dubstep or some shit like that i don't
0: know i thought dubstep was like two years ago
1: yeah dubstep was two years ago the black eyed peace party was like ten years ago (laughs) now that's terrible right like that's what is the sound but ask us from five years from now. We'll tell you exactly. Yeah, what I was, will
0: tell you what the sound was. <laughs> Although since I stopped listening to the radio, it's the only time I listened to the radio was um, in the morning, and then I guess got so annoyed with all of the morning shows that I don't listen to the radio in the morning anymore. So I don't even listen. I don't.
1: I don't know. Yeah, we we were having a bit of like a '70s resurgence. Uh, well, in 2014. Mm-hmm. You know, in between Uptown Funk, but also Daft Punk, like, you know, get... Yeah.
2: This, this conversation got very how-do-you-do-velo-kids. <laughs> 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 I mean, if there was a Labyrinth remake where all of the songs sounded like Uptown Funk, I would be there for that. <laughs> just the dancing alone. And you could have your one-goblin, Mark Ronson. <laughs> yeah. Just in the background shaking his head. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so MTV put together a list of people's suggestions who would get cast in a remake, and they're all awful. Okay.
0: To
2: so the person who suggested Johnny Depp, I hope you follow.
0: What? Oh, no. No. Dying a yeah. fire.
1: I feel like the guy who says Lady Gaga is just looking, well, who is the weird musical performer of today?
2: Well, she's already kind of you know, yesterday's news, isn't she? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think this was also suggested after her tribute performance at the Grammys, although maybe, no, maybe before, I don't know.
2: Which David Bowie's son hated.
1: Oh, Zachary Quinto? No. He's Yeah. Uh, Tilda Swinton?
2: I feel like she's just now the go-to suggestion for something vaguely weird in the same way that the go-to suggestion for Bond is Idris Elba. Yeah. It's not necessarily a bad decision, but it's not going to happen and we're kind of bored of talking about it.
1: This person says, I just know that Eddie Redmayne will be cast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ah! Can he bring his outfit from Jupiter Ascending and also keep the same modulation of the voice? a <laughs> whispers with nothing in between.
0: Talk very, very quietly. And then fellow <laughs>
2: <laughs> Oh, bless. He worked so hard on those abs, didn't he?
0: So
1: the... If Jared Leto plays Jareth in the Labyrinth remake, I will burn the world down. Yep. Yep. Talk about killing childhoods.
2: No, Chris, how would he get into Method for playing the Goblin King? He'd probably I don't go steal some babies.
1: Yeah, he'd have to go actually kidnap babies. That'd be like, it's not my fault. I had to... It was just the role that took me over.
2: Yep. Honestly, this is one of the reasons I'm really concerned about him currently being favorite to play Lestat in an interview with the Vampire remake. Okay. Because people are going to die. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, there was a big influence on my childhood as well, actually. (laughs) Mm. Okay, the person who suggested Tom Hiddleston,
0: oh, sweetheart, you don't know what's coming up next, do you? No. (laughs) No. I was telling somebody about Skull Island, and they were like, oh, Samuel L. Jackson should be in that movie, too. And I said, he is! (laughs) (laughs) And Aaron was like, Wait, what?
1: <laughs> but, but about the Tom Hillson suggests is funny because I was gonna joke with, with Taylor Swift music. But joking aside, if you write the music from like Sarah's point of view, then you know, the music Taylor Swift wrote as a 15 19 to nineteen year old is kind of in that teenage girl mm. fantasy, right? Like that actually is very fitting.
0: Oh. That's an intriguing idea. Damn it, so have good ideas about this thing.
2: <laughs> Why does everyone keep suggesting Jared Leto? Nobody knows. Oh, there are some amazing shots from Comic Con of him talking and Viola Davis giving him this look of just, we're going to be taking care of you later. <laughs>
0: <Please>. Good.
1: <sighs> Alright, so I think we've. Have we reached the happy place before I completely ruined Raiden's childhood? <laughs> 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 With my crassness.
0: Yes. I think we're happy. I think
1: we're happy. Uh, think in we're conclusion, happy. I need a Moomin Troll plushie, is what I need.
2: Okay. Yeah, so do I. There's someone on Tumblr who dressed up a Moomin like Hannibal Lecter, and I really, really want it.
1: Oh! That's like the perfect, the, the golden Venn diagram. Load like Kaylee be like, this is you. This is for you. <laughs>
2: For those of you who missed it, there was, I don't know why, but there was a period during the Hannibal fandom where it was very popular to draw Hannibal Lecter as a Moomin, and it is the best thing ever. I think it's because he's Danish, even though Moomins aren't Danish, I think it's just like a Scandinavian thing.
1: And I guess if he voiced it, you know, or there were pictures of him floating around with it and with the plushie at the red carpet or like the one, we're going to post it in the show notes.
2: And I cannot find a single picture of Alexander Skarsgård dressed as a moomin or holding a moomin or anything with a moomin, even before he was in that movie.
0: I feel cheated. Get on it, internet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Brian Fuller, we have have gotten photos of the American Gods cast in Flower Grounds.
2: Yay! Yes! I'm so glad that's
0: continuing. Yes.
1: The only thing we need now is when he... Goes over to Star Trek if you can get that cast. If I, I hope the cast for that will make me as happy as the cast for American Gods did.
2: I hope CBS keep their grubby mitts off it and just let them do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. I also really love that. There's two things. One, Kristen Chenoweth has it. There's a picture of her with Pablo Schreiber and Ricky Whittle, mm-hmm. and she's got that look on her face of like jackpot. And two, just the sheer enthusiasm Ian McShane has for it. (laughs) Makes me very happy. He just looks really happy to be there. (laughs) No talk of tits and dragons here. Yeah. From what I understand, there wasn't even that much dragons in Game of Thrones this season. It was mostly tits.
1: Well, I think we actually got slightly more dragons this season than before.
2: I really just hear about Game of Thrones through my dad now, because he watches Mm. it. (laughs) But he can never remember anyone's names. (laughs) So it's like, so there's the dwarf. And then there's the woman that was in the St. Trinian's, and then there's Moriarty from Elementary, and then there's the big guy, which could mean anyone on that show. It could mean anybody. Yeah, he wasn't helping.
1: Was was Natalie Dorman St. Trinian's, or Lena Headey? No, that was Lena Headey. Headey.
0: She's the English teacher in the St. Trinian's remake. Well, by all accounts, based on people I trust, this season did... Quite a lot to attempt to redeem from last season, so yes, I will be watching this most recent season. I was uh, reserving judgment till the season ended because I wasn't. <laughs> I've been hurt before. <laughs>
1: I actually did catch up because I abandoned it in the middle of the previous season and then I started hearing good things, so we, we caught up, and yeah, it was better. It, it yeah. did.
2: So they just needed to drop the source material much quicker than they did?
1: I mean, they, they kind of did drop the source material, you know what I mean? Well, like, I mean,
0: they ran out of source material.
1: Yeah.
0: But, I mean, a lot of the, the problems that people had with the previous two seasons were changes they made to the source material. hmm So, I... Would like to think that they heard what people were saying and listened. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That would be nice. So we'll see.
2: I would. I mean, I would like that show to be good. Info is not a show I watch. It's just it's something that is such a huge part mm-hmm. of the pop culture ecosystem that for it to be good and to do good things with its characters and to not treat them all like. Topless rape victims in the week in the yep. waiting, that—that's a big deal.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Because what's going on right now with Batman: The Killing
1: Joke? <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. have we, have, we are not ending this episode. No, let's Batman. end. This no, 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 no. Yeah,
0: but speaking of Hannibal, we're going to jump to Richard Armitage. I'm seeing him on Broadway in November. <sighs> Got a ticket. Yay. <laughs> and now nothing else awesome can be on Broadway that weekend because all of my, all of my time is taken. <laughs> you don't have
1: morning shows,
0: but it'll be three shows in two days, so I'll be an emotional wreck by the end of *Dangerous Liaisons*.
1: So it'll be uh, *Hamilton*, the uh, Richard Armitage show, and
0: *Dangerous Liaisons* with Leah <laughs> Schreiber. Yeah, and Janet McTeer. Do you <laughs> know how long it took me to realise
2: Leah Schreiber's brother is Pablo Schreiber? Yeah.
0: Right? <laughs> like it's just once it's how the genetics work in your family? <laughs> Did Leah get like all the draw? Like, so kids? because they're
2: half brothers. Okay. Maybe that's how. But um It's one of those things if you watch it and you think, I I do see it, but like I should have put these dots together much quicker. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's so funny sometimes when you don't realize actors are related. Like uh, the point at which you realize that William over is like Tom Cruise's cousin. Yeah. Or that Miguel Ferrer is George Clooney's cousin. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, so uh, we'll have a full report of that'll be an interesting episode when you get to report on all of those.
0: Yes. In the meantime, if you want to go back to. Early 90s, happy nostalgia, Animaniacs is on U.S. Netflix.
1: Oh, and Netflix has that new Voltron series, which is actually really good and is getting a second season. I've heard that too. We, we ended up marathoning it just kind of in the background because it's actually, yeah, it's really good.
0: Excellent. Good job. Good job, Netflix. Um, it's hilarious to occasionally see posts from from the kids these days on Tumblr watching Animaniacs and going, oh my god, didn't didn't did the people making this understand the jokes they were making? <laughs> yes, pumpkin. Yes.
2: There's a prince joke on that show. Oh,
0: that my, is... god. oh yep.
2: my god. Oh my god Good
0: night everybody <laughs> Yep. All right, so this has been episode forty six six. And we will be back at you next month after the Rio Olympics <laughs> talking about the Rio Olympics.
1: In which Already I have no shake.
0: of things to talk about for the Rio Olympics are very long. And <laughs> they haven't even happened yet. Yep. Yeah. It's all gonna be
2: fine. I'm sure of it.
0: I mean, yes. what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> could possibly go wrong? The New York Times just reported that Every Russian athlete that hasn't already been banned
1: is not banned.
0: (laughs) No, they're not banned, but they have to individually petition to go to the games. The
2: whistleblower for the entire doping scandal is not allowed to compete as an independent athlete. (laughs) Who is more corrupt, IOC or FIFA?
0: (sighs) Now there's your homework for next month. (laughs) Show your work. Tell (laughs) us who's more corrupt. We expect a 5 pair, or a five-page essay, and uh, this will be the entirety of your grade.
1: <laughs> See you all next month. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production.